This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. We're back in John's Gospel. So would you grab your Bible, grab the one in the rack in front of you. There should be a black hardback one there. Uh, And open it to John chapter 6, John's Gospel, the 6th chapter. If you don't own a Bible or don't have one that you like reading at your house, take the one in the rack in front of you home. We want you to have a good Bible at your house that you enjoy reading. So while you're getting to John 6, I want to begin by sort of dispelling a nasty rumor. It's a deception and a slander, a manipulation that has been circulating for thousands of years. But people keep falling for this lie. And I don't want us to. I don't want us to fall for this lie. It's a rumor, probably more truthfully call it an accusation, that God is a taker, not a giver. It's been suggested that God wants to take your freedom or your pleasure or your fun or what you've worked hard for, and if you don't give it to him, he'll become angry and he's going to punish you. It's not true. It's not true. In fact, nothing could be further from the truth. God wants to free you, and he wants to fill you. God's a giver. He's the ultimate giver. And so to know him is to receive from him. We receive truth and blessing. He gives life. Without him, we don't have any true life. With him, we have it abundantly. God's a giver, not a taker. And the greatest thing that God will ever give you is his one and only son, Jesus. John, already in this gospel, we've been out of it for a little while now, we're coming back into it, has already told us that Jesus is the very word of God made flesh. He says it that way because calling Jesus the word communicates to us from God that he is the truth and the power and everything that God wants humanity to have from him. If you go back to chapter 1, when John is introducing us to Jesus... He says in 116, from his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. And where we pick it up in the gospel today is Jesus acting out that promise from God. From God's fullness, he gives grace. And he never gets tired of giving grace. He never runs out of grace. So God always has more grace to give. From his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. And this is a story of Jesus showing in a way that people can see and experience and taste that God gives more grace and that he just never runs out of it. And so these actions that we read about this morning from the life of Jesus all relate to grace. 
We're going to read two things. I think there's actually a third miracle in here that I'll point out, but there are two big episodes, and they're very well-known. They both relate to grace. And so it's a good idea as we start to ask what this is meant to teach us about grace. What kind of grace does the giving God bestow upon us? This morning, I think we're going to find that, that John tells us about three kinds of grace that we receive from God in Jesus. The first is grace for things that we know we need. God gives grace for things that we know we need. The second is grace for the things that we think we want, but God knows better. And the third is God gives grace that carries us where we cannot take ourselves. So first, grace we need. Second, grace to give us what is better because God knows best. And third, grace to carry us to the other side. I'm going to read the whole passage and then we will study through it. So I just encourage you to follow along, hear what Jesus has done, what he has said, what people have seen. Let's marvel at the grace of God together. John chapter 6, starting in verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the, path to the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he knew himself, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of these to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in this place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. 
These two miracles are among Jesus' most well-known. The feeding of 5,000 men is the only miracle recorded in all four of the Gospels. And three of the Gospels tell us about Jesus walking on water. So every Gospel, including this meal, this big, large meal, must mean that it's important. So what are we, what are we, what are we meant to learn from it? Uh, let's start by seeing what is happening. So it says, after this, Jesus went to the other side of the sea. John uh, most often organizes his gospel thematically, not as much chronologically, which means that when it says after this, the, the, it, referring back to chapter 5, the next thing, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that immediately after that happened, Jesus got in a boat and went to the other side of the sea. Chronologically, there's probably about six months between chapters 5 and where we've re-entered uh, re the gospel in chapter 6. So then, if it's thematically oriented, why does John put this here? And the answer is that in chapter 5, Jesus has just been saying that God is not the cold, hard bully the religious leaders were telling people he was. Instead, he's a generous God who is in the process right among them of displaying his ultimate glory. And you see, when you see the glory of God, you see his character. Because his glory is to give life to as many people as will receive it from him. That's what God wants to do. He wants to save people. And it's his glory, it shows his glory to do it. His glory, in other words, is to pour out grace. Now it says in chapter 5 that he will let those who are leading themselves to judgment keep going that way. But God is regularly imploring people to hear his voice and live. That's chapter 5. Now something different than before was happening. There's a small thing happening in chapter 5. Now in chapter 6, a crowd is gathering. But let's notice the details. Why have the people come? They come because they've seen the signs that he was doing on the sick. He was healing people. And so the crowds are coming either to be healed themselves, or they just kind of wanted to be close to the magic. Jesus has already said, in, in this gospel, he says it all over the other gospels as well, he would much rather that they come that they believe, because they believed in him without all the miracles. And he would still to this day, he doesn't, he wants people to come by faith, again, not because of the, what they think he can do for them. People are always coming to Jesus trying to get something out of him. They think that, that in him they can find healing or, or blessing or they're in a jam and they've run other, out of other options. They can't get out of it on their own and, and Jesus is still saying to people today, don't come for what I can do for you. Don't come for the miracles. Don't come for the healing. Don't come for the blessing. They're not the real thing. He's the real thing. 
So he says, come from me. Come from my presence. Come from my joy. Come from my peace. Come from my life. <coughs> Don't come for the little things. Come for the one biggest thing. But even here's, Jesus is a gracious savior. Even in the midst of that plea, even, even though he's saying, don't come for these things, he has such a big heart for people. So he, he doesn't get angry with people and say, you're just here for the healing. Get out of here. Why don't you beat it? He says, hey, you're here. So let's talk. You're here. So let's sit together. Jesus is so gracious that he would even say, you've come for the wrong reasons. I'm just glad you've come. And so I'll show you the right reasons. I want you to see them for yourselves, but I'm just glad you've come, so I will show you the right reasons. And that's what he does on the hillside. They've come for the wrong reasons. He's going to show them the right reasons. And even the disciples are still learning this. They're still learning who he is, and they're still learning what they need from him. And so he will show them too. So that's verse 6 here. That's what Jesus is doing in verse 6. He's showing the disciples. And Jesus disciple Philip is the one who gets taught the lesson, but it's for everybody. So Jesus has the people sit down. He asked how they're going to be fed. And Philip says, even if we have, and so 200 denarii is like two thirds of a year's wages. Even if we had two thirds of a year's worth of pay, we still couldn't feed this group. And that's exactly why Jesus asked Philip, He's showing Philip, he's showing the rest of the disciples that all that Philip can see, all the disciples can see is the natural answer. All they can see is the answer that they're looking at with their eyes. And the next words actually give us a clue that, that all the disciples felt this way. And we shouldn't be so arrogant to think that we would have been any different. We would have probably given a similar answer too. So Andrew then suggests, well, there's a, there's a young boy here. He's got five little loaves and some fish. Andrew isn't suggesting there's enough. We've got five loaves and two fishes. I think we can make that work. He's saying the same thing as Philip. All we've got is five loaves and two fishes. That's not going to cut it. They're both saying the same thing. We don't have enough. And that's the perfect setup for Jesus to work. Because what he's going to show them is that when he is there, there's always enough. When Jesus is present, we always have plenty. We live in a, in a very different time, in a very different place, and most of us live very different lives from these people. Uh, for us, it's rarely the next meal. So it's not, in, in, in this context, it's not bread that we probably think we need. We probably have enough of that. But what do we think we need? We think we need more stability. We think we need more money. We think we need more years. We think we need a particular person that we're after. A relationship. We just can just have this relationship, this job, this home. If we could just go to this place, then it would be enough. What Jesus is always showing us is he is the only thing that's enough. It's him. And that's the sequence here. First, we need him. 
to be there. And then we need to learn to trust him that he will give us the rest. That's what the disciples will learn. That's what the people learn. When he's there, there's enough. And when he's there, he'll give us the rest of what we need. Our biggest problem is that we don't believe there's enough. Or we don't believe he can really give it. I mean, isn't that right? When we worry about how our needs will be met, aren't we really saying, I don't trust God to give me what I need? When we're worrying about our needs, isn't that what we're really doing is saying, I don't trust God to give me what I need? Sometimes because of our affluence and the ease that we enjoy in our lives, you know, we, we, we just live in a, a time and a place, the store shelves are stocked with food. For most of us, there's always something to eat in the refrigerator or the pantry, even if it's not our choice or our preference. There's always something around the house to eat. So it's not food. A lot of times, it's probably not even how are we going to pay that utility bill. But we're still asking questions like, what if I don't get what I want out of life? What then? So aren't we still saying in our own modern way, I'm having a hard time seeing how God will take what I think is a little bit and give me a lot. You see, the emphasis on the feeding here isn't that everybody had something to eat. It's everybody had their fill. He actually says it twice. And when they had eaten their fill... Gather, or he says, so also the fish, as much as they, he distributed the bread, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. That's verse 11 and verse 12. And when they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, gathered up, and there was plenty left over. That's the emphasis here. When we're having a hard time saying, I don't know how God's going to take what I think is a little bit and give me enough. God graciously comes to us and says he will. Through Jesus, he gives us enough. He gives us more than we need. So church, let's believe that he does. How does he do it? How does he do it? Well, here, he takes these loaves and he takes these fish. Which, by the way, we're we're meant to even see, if we knew anything about the loaves and the fish, we would realize they're even smaller than we think we are. Do not envision a big loaf of bread. Barley was the bread of the poor. And it was probably very small. So you're thinking, not loaf of bread, little muffin. Honestly, that's the size, that's the size that we're dealing with here. And these aren't big fillets of salmon. These are probably because they're being carried with the barley to little fish in kind of a pickled brine meant to preserve them and so this is not a large piece of fish with some big loaves of bread. This is a snack. And Jesus takes that and he feeds thousands. Uh, biblical scholars are, are virtually unanimous that in uh, assuming that the number is listed as 5,000 men, it means that there are many, many thousand more. Upwards of 20,000 people are here. And there's leftovers. There's more than when they started. That's, that's, the, that's the thing that we need to see about the grace of God. There's actually more than when you started. From his fullness, he gives grace upon grace. 
And just in case you think, well, was God's grace maxed out here? Was God's grace used up? The numbers are irrelevant. What you think he's starting out with doesn't matter. He starts out with five barley loaves and a couple little pickled fish. Let's be very clear. He didn't need anything. He could have just said, I will make food. Instead, he does it this way. Uh, When the Israelites think of bread, when a first century Israelite thinks of bread, thought of bread, (coughs) they would have thought of manna. Manna was a sweet bread that God would put on the ground with the dew in the morning when the people had come out of Egypt in the Exodus, but before they had gone in the promised land and they needed something to eat. Every morning, there was enough for that day, plus they would save a little bit so they would have some on the seventh day. So six days a week, bread would just appear on the ground. Sweet bread would just appear on the ground in the morning, and then they would trust that it would be there the next day. So God can just, God can make food out of nothing. He doesn't need a little bit to start with. He doesn't, this isn't like a sourdough starter, okay? He doesn't, he's not seeding it with a little bread and then he's going to make more bread. He just, he can just make bread and fish if he wants to. He's doing it this way. And the point of manna, the point of this is to say, I'm giving you what you need today. Don't worry I can do it all over again tomorrow. My grace hasn't been exhausted for today. I haven't run out of flour and whatever else you put in bread for today. And for us, we need to learn to trust him by faith. And that's hard. It really is. We naturally look around and say, how can he give me what I need in this situation, in this time, under this hardship, up against this news? In the face of this tragedy, when, when, when I've been hurt so badly by this person, it's into that that Jesus steps to promise grace. But not just grace, grace upon grace, because he's full of it and he never runs out of it. He can just give more grace after more grace. So when we think we need something, or when we really do need something, God is gracious to give it, and he can always do that. So that's the first thing, grace for what we know we need. Now when the people see this, this is where we're going to see God giving grace when he to not give us something because he knows better. When the people see what's happening, they know something special is before them. But again, they don't understand him yet. Even the disciples don't understand him yet. So what do they do? They see something miraculous happen. This happens a couple of times in the Gospels. They try to make him their king. What they try to do is make him something that he was never supposed to be. And this is because they're seeing him right in front of them, but they don't yet know him. They don't understand him. You might say, how is that, how is it grace to go away from them? So this is what Jesus does. Uh, The second act of his grace that we see here is he leaves them. He runs away. 
And so you'd ask, well, how is that grace? It's grace because he's teaching them what a better king looks like. So the people wanted to make him king because of what they thought that they could do for, but he could do for them. So some scholars have also suggested that in in making sure that we understand that there were at least 5,000 men there, what kind of John is subtly communicating is Jesus could have formed a pretty substantial guerrilla army right then and there and had a a troop of 5,000 men ready to follow him into some kind of military conquest. They're ready to fight for Jesus, not just anoint him king, but see that he rightly sits at the seat of power. But that's not the kind of Messiah that he is. And folks, that's a good thing because that's not the kind of Messiah we need. And so Jesus shows them a better way. Maybe our biggest problem as people who struggle to put our faith in Jesus is that we are constantly fighting to not make this place our home and to not put everything we are into this place. And so we're always fighting the tendency to try to set up a kingdom that lifts up, uh, that lifts us up in this world. This thing that they tried to do to Jesus is actually the very same thing that the devil tempted Jesus with after 40 days of fasting. He said, you can be king of this world. I'll make you king of this world right now. But we don't want Jesus to settle for being king of this place. And it would be settling. This world is filled with brokenness and disease and injustice and the rest of the effects of man's fall into sin. We don't want Christ to lead us in victory so that we can live here forever. We want him to lead us in victory into the world to come because it's so much better. There's no more sin there. We can know God face to face there. Everything is made right there. We don't want Jesus to be king of this world. We want him to be the king of the world to come. And he is and he will be forever. And so God is gracious to run away. Jesus is gracious to run away from them and say, no, this is not how it's best. And God is gracious to do this on a smaller scale all the time for us too. Uh, Much of the grace that God brings into our lives is to just simply not give us the things that we think we want. Here is the best example I think I can give. I don't know anybody who doesn't want more money. But the truth about money is this. I've never met a single person who got more money and it helped them to trust in God more. I'm not saying that you can't trust in God if you have some money. I'm saying I've never met a person who said, I got more money and it led to a deeper faith in God. I know it's hard. This is for me too. But the more luxury we have, this is, the way, this is the way we work as people. The more luxury we have, the more convenience we have, the more technology, the easier it is to come by our food, the more comfortable we are, the less we see and experience 
our daily provision from God. And the less apparent it come, becomes that we need him and that we're dependent on him. So much of what we think we want in the world, God is so gracious to say no. If I were to give you that, you would think less of me. You would need me less. You would want less of me. So God is kind not to give us all that we think we want. For if we did, we would probably no longer think that we need him. And in the same way, God is kind to save us, not to this world, to not make this our home, because he has a much better one that he is bringing us into. And that brings us to the third type of grace we see here, grace to carry us to the other side. After Jesus withdraws from the crowd, the disciples get in a boat and and they're headed across the lake. And look carefully at what happens. Details are so great in the Gospel of John. I love the little details. So there's a storm that comes up. The Sea of Galilee is about seven miles across. It's not a coincidence that we're told they rode three or four miles. Of seven, how much is three to four? Half. They're in the middle of the lake. They can't get any farther from either shore. And the the storm has come up and Jesus comes to them walking on water. Lest you think they were in a shallow area, there was probably a sandbar. It must have sort of been kind of an optical illusion. He was probably just walking along the beach, but they thought it was the water. They're in the middle of the lake. And Jesus comes walking on the water. That's miracle number one. I want us to see miracle number two because I think you've probably heard a lot about Jesus walking on the water. There's a second miracle here. This is the one that gets glossed over. So Jesus says to them, it is I, do not be afraid. And it says they were glad to take him into the boat. And then these are the words. And immediately, immediately, the boat was on the other side of the lake at the place they were going. That's miracle number two. They were in a storm in the middle of the lake, in the middle of the night. And all of a sudden, they're exactly where they need to go on the other side of the lake, just after they brought Jesus into the boat. They're three miles away from this. But with Jesus, they're instantly rescued and delivered. And God is still doing that today. All we have to do is welcome Jesus in. The circumstances for the disciples are not so different from our own. For them, a storm is all around them. We've experienced storms. We will experience storms. At first, they're unsure of what's happening. But as soon as they recognize Jesus, John says they were glad to see him. Other other than it being true, why does John say it like that? Why does it that they were glad to see him? Because, one answer at least, is if if it hadn't been Jesus, they would have been all the more afraid and probably figured, we're in real trouble. But with Jesus there, they're safe. So we have to ask ourselves, what do we think when we sense the 
presence of Jesus? Is it relief? Is it peace? Or possibly, do some of us have a view of Jesus where we're not glad to see him because we have a mistaken understanding of who he is and why he's come to us? No matter who you are or what, you ha- what your life has been like up to that point, Folks, I want you to know that when Jesus is there, it's the best thing. Not just a good thing, the best thing. Many people think that when Jesus comes near, they're in trouble. They think he's there to get them. They they think he's there to take some kind of vengeance or to, to enact some kind of a judgment. That's only true when Jesus judges. He will be the judge of all eternity for us. But it's only true that we're under judgment if we're not glad to see him. For everybody who is glad to see Jesus, his presence brings peace because he's there to help. Listen, you could be the worst person alive. But if you repent of your sins in Jesus' name and you begin following him, he'll forgive you and he'll give you a new life and then he will carry you through the rest of your life into the life to come. That's what you get with Jesus. That's what his presence gives you if you will just be glad to see him and welcome him in. There's this old hymn. It's one of the oldest hymns that we have sung here. I haven't sung in a long time. It's called Hark, I Hear the Harps Eternal. And the picture it uses of salvation through Christ is of hearing harps playing in an eternal city on the other side of a body of water. And as you sing it, the lyrics are about getting into a boat with a boatman or a driver and being carried across to the city all the while being beckoned by the beautiful sound of the harps. In the hymn, the city is the New Jerusalem. The water is going, spanning the chasm from this life to eternal life, and the one taking you across is Jesus. You can't get across yourself. You need Jesus. And he takes you there by grace. When Jesus is close to you, you have nothing to fear. And you have everything to be glad in. When Jesus is close to you, there's nothing to fear. So be glad in him, for him, with him, that he's come near. To close, let me, let me do this. Let me tell you about two things that, that will prevent us from being really glad that Jesus is there. Uh, the first is to make the mistake of thinking that Jesus is is disappointed in us, and if he gets near to us, he'll see us for who we truly are, and then he will shy away, or he'll be repulsed, or he'll think, this person's so messed up, I gotta go find somebody a little bit better. That doesn't happen. Jesus knows you. He knows you better than he knows yourself, and if you're in him, he died for you. 
And he didn't die for you because he thinks that you're already pretty good. He died for you precisely because of who he already knows that you are. You and I are people who need somebody else, him, to die for us because if we approach him on our own, if we approach God on our own, we will never stand out. That's why Jesus died. He knew that our sin demanded payment. But he also knew that if he paid for it, if he died in our place, then he could give us life in his place too. So don't make the mistake of thinking that Jesus will come near to you and be disappointed in you. When Jesus comes near, be glad. The second mistake that we might make with Jesus coming close is to think that we're worthy of him coming close. This is the opposite side, the reverse. This is pride. We can think, Jesus was probably pretty glad to die for me. I, I make a pretty good Christian. He probably is glad that I'm on his team. And if we're there, oh man, God help us. Because we need to be humble for him to exalt us. Scripture says that he brings the proud down low and he lifts the lowly up. That's the, we'll call it the trick of following Jesus. We have to remember that we're not worthy of him, but we have to believe that he loves us all the more for that. So how, how do we do that? How, how do we stay humble before him? I would at least start with this. One of the best ways that you can stay humble before Christ is being quick to confess sin and open to receiving the grace of God. Do everything you can to make sure you don't go the way of pride. And to do that, it's really helpful to ask God to reveal your sin to you and to thank him often for grace. And then ask for the chance to be gracious toward other people. Godly confession is muted when you're proud toward other people. So do this. Daily, say, God, I confess my sin to you and I want to try with as best as my memory will sustain to go through the day and think, where might I have sinned against you? Where might I have fallen short of your glory? Where might I have been harsh with other people? And then thank him for his grace. You don't have to wonder whether he's going to give it. He's going to give it. He will always give it. That's who he is. Remember, he's a giver. And then ask for chances to be gracious toward other people. And aren't there lots of those? We just go throughout the day. There there are little things sometimes and bigger things, hopefully more rarely, but we've got lots of chances to be gracious to other people. That's one of the best ways that we can stay humble is by being gracious to other people. When we withhold grace from other people, it feeds our pride. When we give grace to other people, it breaks down our pride. So let's love to be near Jesus. Not because we're worthy of him, but because we know we're not. But we've learned, God has shown us that he comes to us anyway. Let's receive the grace that he gives. And remember that he gives it over and over again. He doesn't run out. 
his fullness cannot be depleted. I just love that picture. How much grace does God have? What's the measure of his grace? It's immeasurable. He's full of it. He's filled with it. And from his fill, he gives freely and abundantly. It's the last thing I'll say. If you're in Jesus, you're in the grace of God. Let's pray. God, may we, your people, praise your name by being humble to receive the grace of Christ, believing that we are not worthy of it, but you give it anyway. Thank you for filling us with it. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Our Savior is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words. Building community, bringing Christ. To learn more about this vision and our hope for our neighborhood, visit us online at osefc.org.